How do you do? Welcome to the second of our series, Keyboard Immortals Play Again in Stereo. You are hearing one of them doing so now, performing our signature theme, which is Schumann's Chopin portrait from Carnival. And new listeners to our program will be startled when I identify him. He is, or rather was, Alfred Reisenhauer, one of Franz Liszt's most celebrated pupils, and the performance you are now hearing actually took place in 1905. This Chopin theme is particularly appropriate for tonight's musical feast, which we have entitled Keyboard Immortals Play Chopin. How these immortals, Galston, Leschetizky, Paderewski, Samarov among them, played Chopin at the very beginning of the century, and have you hear them now in absolutely accurate stereo reproduction, faithful in every musical nuance, I will explain briefly a little later on. Now, for our first keyboard immortal of the hour, Gottfried Galston. He was an Austrian and studied with the great Leschetizky, who also taught Paderewski and who took the place of Franz Liszt as the master teacher of his generation. Incidentally, I must apologize for having credited Mr. Sapelnikov as being Paderewski's teacher last week. It was Theodore Leschetizky who will play for us later on in this program. Gottfried Galston plays the revolutionary etude which Chopin composed in Stuttgart, Germany, in 1831. The news of the fall of Warsaw upset the gentle Chopin terribly, and this inspired the wild despair of the tempestuous music you are about to hear. My fellow pianists will, I am sure, join me in envying the ease with which Gottfried Galston negotiated those tricky left-hand passages we have just heard in Chopin's revolutionary etude. Next is Joseph Levine, in a light, almost frivolous mood, playing a Chopin mazurka. You may have heard me speaking about our keyboard immortal Joseph Levine last week. He was our first virtuoso on that program and gave a brilliant performance of Weber's Morto Perpetuo. This Chopin mazurka is one of a set of four which the composer dedicated to La Comtesse Mostovska, who was probably one of the many titled ladies who were Chopin's adoring admirers. <laughs> ¶¶ 
This delightful performance of a Chopin mazurka by Joseph Levine captures the aristocratic dance rhythm of a bygone age. There is an interesting review of Vasily Sapelnikov's debut in London in 1889 by that impudent young music critic, George Bernard Shaw, whose collected music reviews have been published in four delightful volumes. Sapelnikov, our next keyboard immortal, incidentally introduced one of Tchaikovsky's piano concertos into England and, according to Mr. Shaw, his performance was powerful and most impressive. We will hear Vasily Sapelnikov in a poetic nocturne in E-flat by Chopin. Both composition and performance are wonderful examples of the music from a more leisurely age than ours. of Sapelnikov's beautiful singing tone. It is so perfect for a Chopin nocturne. Keyboard immortal Paderewski captured the public's heart to an extraordinary degree. 
This was not only because he was a great pianist. Paderewski had that additional, imponderable star quality that has made his name more remembered than most of his great contemporaries. Maestro Paderewski plays for us the short, brilliant butterfly etude by Chopin, so-called because it seems to portray the capricious flight of a butterfly. The butterfly etude by Chopin, which Paderewski has just played, was dedicated by the composer to his friend, Franz Liszt. In every generation, there always seems to be one great teacher to whom all the talented young pianists inevitably are drawn. Such a teacher was Theodor Leschetizky, our next keyboard immortal. He was born in 1830, and was concertizing at the same time as Franz Liszt. Many of the great pianists on tonight's program, including Paderewski, studied with him. Also Galston, Arthur Schnabel, and Fanny Bloomfield Zeisler. You have just heard the student, Paderewski, and now you will hear the master, Leschetizky, in a performance of one of Chopin's greatest and most difficult nocturnes, the one in D-flat.
Incidentally, that nocturne in D-flat was dedicated to La Comtesse d'Apanie, about whom I could find no information whatever, but she was undoubtedly another of Chopin's aristocratic lady fans. The composition you're about to hear now is one of Chopin's best known, the Minute Waltz. Actually, the name means Waltz Minute, a small waltz, but give a waltz a name and it sticks. Its rapid melodic figures have also created a tale about a tale belonging to a little dog who in turn belonged to Madame George Sand, who was Chopin's femme fatale. However that may be, it is one of Chopin's most cheerful compositions and has outlived the many frivolous names people have invented for it. It is played by America's greatest woman pianist of the past, Fanny Bloomfield Zeisler, another Leschetizky pupil. I know the ladies will hate me for this, but the quality that helped establish Madame Zeisler was that, as the critics said, she played like a man. For in those far-off days, the ladies were usually more adept at swooning gracefully than dominating the intricacies of a concert grand. So, one of the great ladies of our legendary concert world, Fanny Bloomfield Zeisler, playing the Minute Waltz by Chopin. was Fanny Bloomfield Zeisler playing Chopin's Minute Waltz in just under two minutes. Keyboard immortal Stefan Raoul Pugno was born in Paris more than a century ago. He appeared in America towards the end of the last century and died in Moscow in 1914. It is highly unlikely, therefore, that anyone living today ever heard Raoul Pugno play. But here he is playing as if he were living at this moment and in stereo yet in the well-known fantasy impromptu by Chopin.
In spite of the fact that Tin Pan Alley decomposed the middle section of the last number as the Chasing Rainbow song, I think that Chopin's melody in its original form will somehow manage to survive. An etude or study for the piano is generally a difficult practice piece which is based upon a particular pianistic problem and thereby helps to solve it. Chopin's etudes, however, are what are called concert etudes, for they have so much musical value that they have become an important and valuable part of the piano virtuoso's repertoire. Number five is the so-called study on the black keys, because most of it actually uses only the black keys. Only once during the entire piece does the right hand play one note on a white key. It is played for us by Arthur Schnabel. Born in Austria, he made his debut in 1882 in Vienna at the age of eight and eventually became an American citizen. Chopin's Etude on the Black Keys, Opus 10, Number 5, under the lightning fingers of Arthur Schnabel. <laughs> just heard Arthur Schnabel play the Black Key Etude by Chopin, number five of his Opus 10, dedicated to Franz Liszt. One of the most colourful personalities among piano virtuosos of all time was our next keyboard immortal, Vladimir de Bachmann. He was, as one historian says, noted for his picturesquely eccentric personality. On one occasion, believe it or not, at a recital in Queen's Hall in London, he startled his audience by saying, Last week on this platform, a great pianist, Teresa Carreño, played a Chopin mazurka. I regret to say that she played it abominably. I will now play it as Chopin intended it to be played. What the fiery Teresa Carreño had to say, fortunately, is not recorded. But now, Vladimir de Pachmann playing you the Chopin Mazurka, Opus 67, Number 4.
Vladimir de Pachmann has just played the Chopin Mazurka, Opus 67, Number 4. Now we are going to visit once again with the man who is responsible for the keyboard immortals visiting us, Mr. Joseph Tushinsky, president of Sony Superscope. Good evening, Mr. Tushinsky. Good evening, Felix. And what fascinating question is on your mind this week? One that I share with a good many of our listeners, I think, Mr. Tushinsky. Let me begin this way. I believe that as of January the 29th, Keyboard Immortals is to start broadcast runs in 15 other cities. Is that right? Yes, it is. I'm not going to read off a list of the cities, but they are the major cities that come automatically to mind all across the continent. I see. And should I have added that these cities are going to receive this keyboard series just as we in Los Angeles lose it? Or do we? Many listeners have written asking why the program, having gone up to 18 from its original 13 weeks, cannot continue beyond 18. I must admit that I personally have some slight interest in this. Oh, Felix, now you're letting the cat out of the bag. Seriously, though, of course, we've been thinking about the possibility of continuing the Keyboard Immortal program over KFAC beyond January 29th. As yet, however, it's still undecided. Preparing and recording the programs is a lot of work. That won't hurt me, but in spite of our fan mail and of this station's estimation of our listeners' numbers, we really don't know for certain how many followers we actually do have. But haven't we a clue, as the saying goes? As a matter of fact, Felix, we do have a clue, or will have in a couple of weeks, the clue is the number of reservations we finally get for the three live Forzetza concerts we are presenting at the end of January at the Wilshire Ebel Theatre. And how are the applications coming in? A little disappointingly so far. For the first three concerts, January 28th, 29th, and 30th, we have, all told, nearly 4,000 tickets to dispose of. And at the last count, we had received something like 1,000 reservations. Or rather, our dealers had received a thousand reservations. Considering that the concerts are free and will be absolutely unique, a real first, if there ever was one, that is not exactly a flood of requests. However, I suppose the holidays got in the way. Certainly they must have. And here is something else. A good many people have written in to say that for one good reason or another they simply can't get to their dealers during store hours and some of them don't know who their nearest dealers are. Have you any suggestions as to what they had best do? Yes, I have been made aware of this, Felix. To expedite matters, if anyone in difficulties will write to us, care of Keyboard Immortals, Sony Superscope, Sun Valley, will accept their reservation through the mail, we will contact the dealer and make sure the person gets his ticket. Are you setting a deadline for this service? Yes, January 20th. After that, I doubt if we'd have the time to make the necessary arrangements. Until then, we'll be glad to help. And we'll probably have all the tickets disposed of by January the 19th. Well, let's hope so, Felix. If we do have a good attendance in prospect by then, we can safely assume that the broadcasts have a good following and Keyboard Immortals will continue for another season. Is that all for this evening, Felix? If so... I think I'll say good night. Good night, Mr. Tushinsky, and thank you. I hope all listeners will remember what Mr. Tushinsky said. Anyone having trouble making a reservation through his Sony Superscope dealers may write to us addressing Keyboard Immortals, Sony Superscope, Sun Valley, California, and we will make his reservation for him and notify his dealer. And now we have something unusual for our listeners, a mystery keyboard immortal... Laura, or as it would be pronounced in German, Laura Danziger. If any of you have any information about Laura Danziger, who lived around the 1900s and played the piano extremely well, as you will hear in a moment, and probably appeared in concert, we would be grateful to hear from you. Simply address your letter to Keyboard Immortals, Sony Superscope, Sun Valley, California. Our mystery keyboard immortal, Laura Danziger, plays the delightful Chopin impromptu, in A-flat, opus 29. <laughs> 
That was the Chopin Impromptu in A-flat, played by our mystery pianist, Laura Danziger. Our next keyboard immortal is certainly no mystery. He is at the same time composer immortal Camille Saint-Saëns. This great French composer was born in 1835, and he was well in his 70s when he played for Herr Welte. Saint-Saëns was a sensational pianist who would have achieved fame without being the great composer that he was. It is with more than simple pride that we present composer, keyboard immortal Saint-Saëns playing Chopin's beautiful nocturne in F-sharp. Isn't it a great privilege to hear Saint-Saëns playing a Chopin nocturne for us today in stereophonic sound, unheard of in his lifetime? Olga Zamarov, our final keyboard immortal like Van Cliburn, was born in Texas. Her maiden name was Hickenlooper, and as a young woman of 23, she made her debut in New York with the famous conductor Walter Damrosch. She headed the piano department of the Philadelphia Conservatory and was graduate professor at Juilliard. She also appeared in concert with violinists Fitz Chrysler and Ephraim Zimbalist, and last but not least, she married a then-young musician, Leopold Stokowski. Keyboard immortal Olga Zamarov plays the brilliant finale of Chopin's Sonata in B minor.
And so, with Olga Zamarov playing the fiery finale of Chopin's Sonata in B minor, we come to the end of our second program in the series Keyboard Immortals Play Again in Stereo. It has been a great pleasure to prepare this musical feast and serve it to you. We hope that you have enjoyed it and will be with us again at the same time next week when our program will be Liszt's Pupils Play List. Among our keyboard giants will be such immortals as Emil Zauer, Frederick Lamont, Eugene Dalbert, Sapelnikov and Reisenhauer, who plays our theme for us each week. This should be the greatest student recital of all time. Franz Liszt's pupils playing their master's compositions. Be with us, won't you? This is Felix de Kohler bidding you Auf Wiedersehen and Au Revoir.